I think tech and like big tech in particular funds a lot of anti-blackness or is like built in a lot of anti-blackness and has really no interest in ever doing anything to confront that, no matter what initiatives they put forward. Because at the end of the day, anti-blackness makes money um, and surveillance is an industry. Welcome back aboard M-Train. This season, we look at the way Muslims are still being surveilled and talk to people fighting for abolition and covering it. In this episode, we talked to journalist Vanessa Taylor and her work focusing on the intersections of tech and Black Muslims. Vanessa, Salam alaikum. Welcome to M-Train. Could you please introduce yourself? Tell us what you do. My name is Vanessa Taylor. Uh, I'm a journalist, currently based in Philadelphia, but I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota to start. I started as a community organizer before I got into journalism, uh, which really influences the type of journalism that I focus on. I do a lot of coverage on political movements, uh, specifically like grassroots movements. And then I also do a lot of coverage on Black Muslim communities, Black Muslim womanhood, uh, and technology and surveillance. So specifically, you have a newsletter called Nuzzer, which I'm very excited to see has just come back from a break. For some of our audience members who might not be familiar with that work, could you briefly tell us what you cover there? So uh, Nuzzer is an independent journalism project on surveillance or anti-surveillance newsletter. I launched it in, I think it was May of 2020. So I launched it in the morning. And then that same day, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. And so that event really impacted my coverage um, and how Nuzzer functions from the start. My goal with it was to kind of break into a space in journalism that was really difficult for me to get into as a Black Muslim woman. Uh, Journalism as an industry is pretty white, but like the tech beat itself is almost doubly so. And I found that when I was trying to get into tech coverage, a lot of what I wanted to focus on was surveillance and the social impacts of technology, which in the eyes of a lot of editors almost took my work out of tech. So I figured I may as well just do it myself. That's so interesting. But Let's go back to that moment with the murder of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin. Talk to us a little bit about, in those early days, some of the things that you were covering, how it was shaped by that huge moment in American history. So when I launched Nazar, I had an idea of doing, you know, the initial launch and then more of a deeper introduction to the newsletter and my goals with it through an essay. But when George Floyd was murdered, I kind of felt that it would be really weird and inappropriate for me to do that, particularly as somebody who, again, I'm from Minneapolis. And in the time that I lived there, I spent the bulk of it as a community organizer. And when I was there, I organized specifically around the police killings of Jamar Clark and Philando Castile. So instead of doing that essay, I decided to put up a Google form for duas against the surveillance state from Black Muslims. And that was actually the first thing that Nazar ever published. And so it's just a collection of duas from people with like a short intro from me. But I thought that it was really important to like center Black Muslim voices and kind of use this to show how Muslim communities are thinking and engaging with surveillance. So in particular, I think I'm really interested in the way that Muslim journalists are involved in the abolition struggle. You've made this argument that Islam and abolition are tied together. So why, in your view, is combating anti-Blackness, combating surveillance and policing a Muslim imperative and also an imperative as a journalist? For me, I'd seen Islam through this lens of political engagement. And then when I began to learn more about Islam, I was doing it specifically through the lens of Black American Muslims and that history. But I do have this desire. I have a desire to see the Afro-American in this country get the 
human rights that are his due, I believe that the Islam religion is the best religion for our people because it creates unity and it gives one dignity and racial confidence and all of these things that are necessary to make a complete human being. There's no separating Islam from political engagement because a lot of Black American Muslims were and continue to use Islam as a space to kind of confront white supremacy, to locate like a voice and agency for themselves and more. Uh, and then when I became a journalist, that was specifically driven out of a, a need for me to take a step back from community organizing in the way that I had been engaging with it. And so I figured I had one skill that was writing. It was something I've been doing since I was a child. And that was something I could still contribute to the movement. Going back to that first thing that you mentioned about the independence of your platform, you haven't hesitated to be critical of legacy media, especially in their coverage of policing. How have you seen legacy media have weaknesses and blind spots that your work is able to call out and others may not see? One thing I see is that we're not necessarily engaged as communities that are worth being taken care of or being spoken to directly. It is more people using the stories of, you know, I'll, I'll use like Black communities and examples of Black people being surveilled as like a cautionary tale. Like, oh, well, this is what could happen to the rest of you if you kind of let this go unchecked. But there's really no reckoning with the fact that, like, who is the rest of us then? Who is being excluded from that us? And why is it that we are only caring about these communities and paying attention to these stories if we can use it as a moment of caution for somebody else? One of the biggest things legacy media also struggles with is the notion of objectivity. But there is no such thing as being objective. Every journalist has their biases. And I think the important thing for journalists and readers to do is to understand what your biases are and how these biases are going to shape a story. And to develop a balanced kind of reading list. And I think what Nuzzer does for me is it, it does add that balance. Because if I was looking for reporting on surveillance um, from other outlets, it wouldn't encapsulate a lot of the conversations that I'm seeing coming out of organizing communities, Muslim communities. I think one of the other posts that I thought was super interesting was you had a piece that was titled, Journalists Stop Moving Like Snitches, uh, which of course is <laughs> using like a phrase that is quite common in, in anti-police or in organizing against the police. So can you talk a little bit about how journalists move like snitches? Whenever there's like that sort of political uprising nationwide, there's always discussions about how journalists should engage with protests, particularly in an age of mass surveillance. So one thing that I saw was people kept posting just full photographs of protesters' faces, right? If you have a picture of somebody's face, right, that's just evidence to be used against them. But when people brought that up, journalists would often make the argument that, you know, we're here to document these public events and you're in the public, so you need to kind of accept that this is going to happen. And to me, that just, again, fundamentally showed that, like, legacy media and journalism as an industry just kind of approaches communities of color and oppressed communities as stories. And there's not really an investment back into these communities. Because if you saw people, protesters, as more than just stories, then you would care about whether or not you're opening them up to any potential harassment from the state or any sort of action along those lines. You know, as a journalist myself, something that always strikes me about reporting on Muslim communities is kind of the double bind, that by reporting on our communities, we are trying to deepen understanding and trying to push back against, you know, state narratives that have oppressed us. But at the same level, by documenting our communities, we're engaging in a level of surveillance ourselves. We are providing a record for, you know, like this conversation, for instance, is a, is a record of, of how a certain segment that, you know, the government or police might be interested in monitoring 
is talking about the police, is talking about the government. How do you reckon with that? Yeah, I think that's been really important for me to consider in my work. So it's something as small as like in my journalism, making it really, really clear to people that I can make you anonymous if you want to be. Uh, and making that an option from the start because people may not know that is an option or may not feel comfortable asking. And then when I'm reporting on them, trying to find that fine line between like, how many details can I include to like still capture the story? But what can I leave out that might help protect this person later on? Talk to me a little bit about the reporting that you've done, the longer form reporting that you've done as well for some of the legacy outlets. Most of my reporting is focused on Black Muslim communities. And one of the pieces that I'm most fond of, I published for Teen Vogue. It was looking at how Muslim youth use surveillance memes online to cope with like the mental health impacts of being surveilled. And so, you know, that memes like the really popular like FBI agent watching me in my computer sort of trope. And I really enjoyed it because it was kind of combining this one area, you know, the digital area and using that as a lead in to discuss an aspect of surveillance that really is understudied in the United States. But like, I think globally, the mental health impacts of surveillance are really understudied. And then I've also done reporting on organizations like Believers Bailout. And then more recently, I've been getting into looking at archives. And so I did two articles for Black History Month. One was the Black Film Archive, and then the other was UMI's Archive, um, a project by Dr. Suad Abdul-Kabir. Could you just really briefly explain what Believer's Bailout is? So Believer's Bailout, it's an organization. They uh, raise money to basically bail Muslims out of detention. I think it's it's not only limited to like jails, but also immigration detention facilities. And they do, uh, I believe, the bulk of their fundraising during Ramadan, so collecting zakat in order to do this project. I think fundamentally, when I look at your work, I do think it's recentering some of the conversations that have happened around surveillance that have erased Black Muslim experiences. It's it's recentering it on the community that historically and and currently is, is probably the most surveilled community in, in America. And I do think what's super interesting about your work is you talk about it from all sorts of levels. Like we just mentioned the digital level, which is something that people are still catching up on. Other journalists are still catching up on. But there's the federal level and there's also like city and local level. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about each. Let's start with, I think, the part that is kind of well-known amongst American Muslims, which is the CVE, the Countering Violent Extremism Programming, that was instituted by Obama in 2014. Talk to us about CVE. How is it a model for how the government thinks about surveilling Muslims? The way CVE functions, it's a soft approach to countering terrorism, which means that it's not necessarily the surveillance I think a lot of people imagine, which is having like an FBI agent on your street or, you know, police tapping your phones or something like that. It's more of the state weeding its way into every aspect of your daily life to keep an eye on you. And that's the soft approach. And so CVE gives out grant fundings to kind of shape the narratives and control organizations within Muslim communities. And that includes not only schools, but nonprofits. Uh, it includes mental health facilities, the practitioners there, and et cetera. One of the big kind of anti-surveillance moments that I saw was a lot of organizations, Muslim organizations, trusted, in theory, Muslim organizations, were faced a lot of pushback for accepting CVE and grant funding. And some of the you know reporting that did cause some folks to reject the funding, some of the organizations to reject the funding. Can you tell us a little bit about where CVE is now? So uh, the CVE grant funding that Obama's administration gave out 
ran out, I think, a few years ago. But since then, as seen in multiple iterations, Trump first had his program targeted violence and terrorism prevention. And that was really directly referred to as CVE 2.0. But Biden has his own version of CVE as well, and it's called Center for Prevention Programs and Partnerships. And with it, he's doing what a lot of people have been calling for, and I think mistakenly, which he's claiming that CP3 will focus on white supremacist extremism as a form of domestic terrorism. Uh, And that's something that people have been invoking since the 2014 program came around to kind of uh, shrug away notions that CVE overwhelmingly targeted Muslim communities. What's your take on that? There's a significant portion of Muslim punditry that feels like the double standard towards Muslim surveillance and Muslim policing ought to be applied to, quote unquote, white terrorists. I think for me, when people call for that, one thing that they're failing to do is really considering the term terrorists and domestic terrorism to start. So domestic terrorism as a category has historically been used by the United States to shut down movements, particularly those coming from communities of color. We don't even have to look that far to consider that. You can look at the FBI's Black Identity Extremists to target the movement for Black lives, as well as Standing Rock, where the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force was involved in confronting protesters and surveilling protesters. And so when we make these calls that white supremacists should be considered domestic terrorists, we're still giving money to an institution that is still going to target communities of color. It's not as if they're only going to target white people. But in addition, we do this weird thing where we're creating a distinction between extremist and non-extremist white supremacy. And I I don't know what a non-extremist version of white supremacy is. There's also the way that local city governance surveils their own population, and in particular, that affects Black folk. Mm. You have done a couple of different pieces about that. Could you talk a little bit about some of the programs that you've written about that are targeting and surveilling Black communities at the city and district level? Yeah, I think it's weird. The sort of need for journalism, because as more and more outlets get eaten up by like private equity firms and et cetera, it's harder to have local journalism, which really puts communities at a disadvantage because I think the surveillance that we see federally is going to start at the local level more often than not. For example, in Minneapolis, CBE predominantly targeted the Somali community because that was one of the biggest populations of Black Muslims. And it was looking at that really specific intersection of anti-Blackness and Islamophobia and xenophobia and going after communities that also didn't necessarily have the money to fight against this program. Because if CVE is a grant program, these organizations need the money and you don't have the ability to kind of step in and offer them that alternative, then it just makes it that much easier for the federal government to step in. I don't think I've asked you, like, you know, as an organizer, former organizer and now journalist, have you felt that you have ever been surveilled? Like, have you seen it affect Mm. anyone in your personal life, if you're willing to share that? I actually wrote about this a little bit in an essay for work recently. So I mentioned that I organized against the police killing of Jamar Clark in 2015 in Minneapolis. And so part of that involved uh, 18-day occupation of uh, the street outside of the 4th Precinct. And so when we were there, there were some surveillance tactics that I didn't quite register as surveillance at the time. Like police would routinely fire basically green paint at the cars. So when the cars left the precinct, you know, you would be able to spot them or follow them throughout the city because it's a car with green paint marked on its side. Then uh, police would also be outside, particularly at night, recording protesters. Uh, I had cameras shoved in my face. But I always remember my mom would constantly tell me that when she called me, my phone was acting weird. 
And she was like, anytime I try to talk to you on the phone, there's like a weird clicking in the background. And so I've never confirmed like whether I was being surveilled, whether my phone was being tabbed, anything along those lines. But she has also told me after you stopped protesting and after you got like a new phone, all of that weird stuff on our call stopped. And so surveillance like really demands people kind of listen to these like inklings that people have, even if it sounds like paranoia, like what I just said might just sound like my mom was being paranoid. But if we look at history, if we look at the context of where I was, if we understand surveillance and how it operates for the state, then we understand that it was a valid concern and it probably did happen, even if there's no like, quote unquote, proof of it. Well, I think it's worth then talking also about like what the goals of surveillance are, because Mm. I think it has a cooling effect that even if you don't know that you're being surveilled, you may not feel comfortable being critical of the government at, say, your mom might be less political in his buzz, or you may not be as comfortable posting things online or, or kind of sharing and organizing. It has this effect where perhaps that's part of the goal as well, is if to make you feel like if you're being watched, you will moderate your position. What do you see as the state's investment in surveilling Black Muslim communities? Yeah, I think surveillance definitely has like multiple goals and all of them can exist at once, even if they're not necessarily stated. And I definitely think fostering that sense of like, we are constantly being watched. And so we need to kind of change how we're behaving is a central component of surveillance. Like we know the Panopticon exists. So that notion of like, you have a jail, you have the guard tower in the center. People can't see into the guard tower to know if somebody is watching them. But that fact that somebody could be potentially up there causes them to change their behavior. And then even now, with, with all the reports coming out, particularly out of the East Coast, about informants being sent to mosques and et cetera, people are also now really distrustful of anybody new in Muslim communities. If I go into a new masjid in Minneapolis, I would get weird looks because I'm Black American. So what am I doing there? That's why I was talking earlier about the mental health impacts of surveillance and why I really wish that had more study and and more journalistic coverage, because I think that's a fascinating component that people don't talk about quite enough. I was actually thinking earlier with all the news going on now, there's a lot of focus on misinformation and disinformation online. And when people talk about these two things, particularly disinformation, it's associated with like Russia, but foreign entities more generally a lot. And I don't think people consider how the United States has used disinformation historically against, you know, Black communities and communities of color and how disinformation could be a vital component of surveillance, like you were talking about, sowing that sort of distrust and that's specifically what disinformation is meant to do. And we saw that with like Pro is probably the easiest example to point to. So on the panopticon question, I think we're living in the biggest panopticon in history, which is our cell phones, technology, our constant monitoring by tech companies because we live so much of our life online. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on tech's relationship with anti-Blackness and surveillance. I think tech and like big tech in particular funds a lot of anti-Blackness or is like built in a lot of anti-Blackness and has really no interest in ever doing anything to confront that no matter what initiatives they put forward. Because at the end of the day, anti-Blackness makes money. Um, And surveillance is an industry. And companies are really just going to prioritize making money over, like, having ethics. And we see this time and time again with big tech, you know, Apple, Google, all of them. But in particular, I I really think of surveillance's roots in anti-Blackness in the United States. 
as a way for people to understand why these two things are brought up in conversation. When you look at surveillance, you look at anti-Blackness, you look at technology, they've all been working together since the United States was founded. And perhaps one of the easiest examples to point to is the creation of biometrics. So identifying people by their characteristics. And in the United States, one of those earliest forms of biometrics as a technology was slave pass. And so I think what often happens in surveillance conversations and in conversations about tech is people look at like Silicon Valley as sort of isolated and digital tech is sort of isolated and they don't think about the analog technologies and those histories that are playing a role here today too. So before you go, I think you've carved out a really unique space for yourself in media and I hope that you continue to do the work even if it's challenging. I want to talk about the impact you've seen from your work and what do you see as some of your most important responsibilities? Why do you think this beat is so important? I think I mentioned earlier that I've been getting really into archiving. And the more I kind of sit with that, I think that's how I really understand my role as a journalist. It's not necessarily about just like covering the present day for people who are here now, but specifically leaving something behind and having a narrative that was crafted by us for us for the generations that are to come. And this is driven a lot by the fact that I identify really solidly as an Afrofuturist. And so, you know, if I'm an Afrofuturist, if I'm thinking about our present past, if I'm thinking about, like, all these generations as being interconnected, that was really the driving force behind my work now. But at the same time, sometimes it is much easier to just, like, go off on the side path and kind of hack your way through the forest and just kind of deal with things there. Yeah. Where can people follow your your work? Tell us about where we can read your writing and where we can subscribe to Nazar. So you can subscribe to Nazar at nazar.substack.com. But I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Bacon Tribe. It is literally the words Bacon and Tribe. And that's where I am most days. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. M-Train is a six-part audio series hosted by me, Amadal Yakbar, and produced by Shereen Barghi. It is edited by Kareem Duadi. Our executive producers are Kai Youngblood and Charlie Hoxie. Follow Brick on Twitter and Instagram at BrickTV and follow me at RadBrownDads. This episode featured music composed by Kareem Dawadi. It's also made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges program. For more information on this and all Brick TV content, visit BrickArtsMedia.org slash BrickTV. I'm Amadal Yakbar. Thanks for listening.